0: Hello, my name is Justin Kluwer, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about the best of the best.
1: That's right. We are traveling to Kampala, Uganda. But more specifically, the neighborhood of Wakaliga, where Ramon Film Productions is based. What is Ramon Film Productions, you may ask?
0: Well, it is the home of Wakaliwood, who gave us such films as Who Killed Captain Alex?, Bad Black, and supposedly 30 to 40 other feature films that currently do not exist because hard drives had to be erased to make the next film. Uh,
1: That's so tragic.
0: Yep. So you may know um, these movies because, I would say six, seven years ago, I believe it was in 2010, actually, so nine years ago, a trailer for a little film called... Who Killed Captain Alex popped up on YouTube and took the world by storm. That's right. It
1: was hyped as Uganda's first action movie, and the trailer made it look like just an... Well, I mean, it's a movie that was filmed in the slums mm-hmm. of Uganda. Even that they would say it was filmed in the slums of Uganda. The budget was less than $200, and yet, totally action-packed.
0: But I think that the reason it did go viral was that people were in this bite-sized form laughing at it. That's right. So bad it's good. Yeah, because it's filled with, like, really low-resolution pictures of helicopters flying through the air. Some
1: very primitive green screen stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, muzzle flashes as big as the screen. And also, like, a certain racist element Mm -hmm. to it, too, because a lot of people, I think, looked at that trailer and were like, oh, isn't that cute? These... They're trying to make movies. These these poor Africans Mm -hmm. think they can do this.
0: Or even worse, it could be, like ah, this is what movies in Africa look like. Right. Because they don't know
1: how to make them. Now, I first became aware of Wakaliwood when you and Peter Kaplowski did a Wakaliwood night a couple years ago at your screening series, the Laser Blast Film Society. Yeah,
0: I think it may have been four years ago that we did it. It was a while back. I think it was like year two. (laughs) Yeah, and that night was so great. Uh, What ended up happening was that Um, When that trailer came out, there was a man named Alan Hoffmanis who saw it on the day that his girlfriend broke up with him after he had just bought her a wedding ring. And he was so depressed that when he saw this video, it just sparked something in him and he got a ticket to Uganda and he flew over there like a week later, and he's been there since, helping out the director of all these films, Nabuana I-G-G, or he's most commonly known as just Isaac.
1: And uh, his his full name is Isaac Godfrey Jeffrey Nabuana, mm-hmm. And yeah, he is the guy who has directed these 40 movies.
0: And so this guy, um, Alan, he not only acted in one of the movies we're going to talk about today, Bad Black, but he also kind of helped spread them around the world because... You know, when Isaac put that trailer for Who Killed Captain Alex on YouTube, he said himself, he didn't really know, like, how the internet worked or what YouTube did. Somebody else helped him do it. And it just kind of spread, like, wildfire all on its own.
1: Who Killed Captain Alex was basically just made by the neighborhood
0: for Mm -hmm. the neighborhood. All of these movies were made like that. Like, they were never meant to go anywhere internationally.
1: And incredibly... The American Genre Film Archive has just put out a beautiful Blu-ray containing Who Killed Captain Alex and Bad Black.
0: And also hours of contextual special features to track the journey that both these movies have taken. Including, like, you know, them on CNN. Mm -hmm. There's, like, a Vice documentary. Yeah,
1: them giving Q&As at film festivals. There's
0: even, like, local news broadcasts. Like, this package is, if what we're talking about interests you, and it should... Because these movies are great, then you should go buy this Blu ray right now.
1: So, you know, the biggest revelation for me when I was at that night that you put on Mm -hmm. um, was that, like, these movies are actually, like, really good.
0: And with a crowd, they go over like gangbusters. Oh, yeah. It's not, you know, sitting there and watching them. And we watched incomplete versions of films as well. Uh Like, some of them were just, like, little shorts because they weren't done. We watched a version of Bad Black. We also watched the opening of Crazy World, Mm -hmm. which has yet to come out. Mm -hmm. And, like just sitting there with an audience and experiencing it laughing and cheering and you understand why you know, these movies have so many fans that are not in the camp of like, look how bad that is. Yeah. And, you know, we got to do a Q&A with the director afterwards through Skype and just the enthusiasm. And Alan was there as well with all the props that he had, including the big machine gun that he uses mm-hmm. in the movie. And he also had um, posters um, from Uganda that are painted. Alan
1: Hoffmanis, by the way, mm. his roles in these movies have included Jesus Christ and Chuck Norris.
0: Yes, and he's like a Rambo-like figure <laughs> yeah. in Bad Black. Yeah, having, having this one white
1: guy in this mm-hmm. universe is an incredible novelty.
0: So uh, we should talk about Who Killed Captain Alex, the one from 2010, mm-hmm. which was, as you said, billed as the first Ugandan action movie.
1: Yeah, so the plot is... And <laughs> the I, plot. <laughs> I did have a bit of trouble following the plot, but it's not really about plot, mm-hmm. it's about action. Yes. Uh, you've got Captain Alex versus the Mafia. And, you know, the head mafioso is one really bad guy. And basically that is the plot.
0: Yeah. The Tiger Mafia. Yeah. Uh, His name is Richard. And then Captain Alex gets killed and everyone's pissed off because they wanted to kill Captain Alex. Mm -hmm. And then Captain Alex's brother goes up against Richard. And and he does Kung Fu training. That's right. uh, Played by an actor named Bruce Yu. (laughs) Yeah. Because as
1: the narrator says, he's the Ugandan Bruce Lee, Bruce Yu. And by the way, speaking of the
0: narrator. Yeah. I was going to say, now we got to the real meat of the matter. This film, when it first popped up on the internet, I remember a lot of people saying, I'd like to watch Who Killed Captain Alex, but I can't because there's this weird audio commentary on it, and I can't find a version that doesn't have it. This audio commentary is what's known as the Video Joker. Mm -hmm. And how would you describe that, Will?
1: Well, it's sort of like a cross between a regular narrator and Mystery Science Theater. Mm -hmm. So it opens with him, he says... This is Vijay Emmy on the microphone. Now you're going to see, this is how we do action in Uganda. Mm -hmm. And so as the movie goes on, he's sort of describing the plot. He's, you know, like if there's a character on screen, he's describing what the character is thinking. And sometimes he's cheering on the
0: action. Sometimes he's like, pointing out how ridiculous the film will be, you'll hear a lot of like, what? And as you said, there'll be a lot of like, yeah, now the action starts.
1: Yeah, like the movie's on. Mm-hmm. they are like, super kicker, what's happening?
0: Action-packed movie. <laughs> We're doing our best not to do a goofy accent. Yeah. Because like this film is so like distinct in the way everything sounds. <laughs> yeah.
1: And yeah, he'll comment on like the ridiculousness of it. It's like, you know, everybody in Uganda knows Kung Fu. Or- <laughs> yeah or you know there's 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 a point in one of them where it's like Alex is on screen and he says something like he's unhappy you'd be unhappy if you were in Uganda
0: too <laughs> yeah. so there's like an awareness of the film and a joy to it as well that's so infectious when you're watching it and you know the director of these films says he loves the video Joker he's friends with him and it also lets him watch the movie through fresh eyes every time he's like I watch it four or five times once he does it
1: by the way there's a my favorite thing that the VJ says is mm. in Bad Black there's a point where um, I yeah.
0: know exactly what you're gonna say <laughs>
1: he, he like falls into a
0: puddle and, yeah. and the VJ oh, says oh no
1: it's Poo Poo and for real this is Uganda Poo Poo is everywhere <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: I mean, I think that my favorite may be um, it's like ah, it's like Rambo, Chuck Norris, Bill Murray, action stars. (laughs)
1: Well, the director of these films, uh, Nabwana Igg, Mm -hmm. he was somebody who like is is a huge movie buff. Sort of even without having seen a lot of movies, like when he was younger, his brother would go into town Mm -hmm. and see probably bootleg screenings of you know Chuck Norris movies, Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, and he would come back and he would. Uh, enact the plots of these films.
0: It should be pointed out that, like, you know, Isaac, the director of these films, said that he had never even been in a movie theater, like, ever, when he's doing, like, video interviews and stuff like that. The closest that they get is what's called, like, video or cinema halls, Mm -hmm. where maybe there'll be a projector, or it'll just be a television and a bunch of chairs under a tent so you
1: know he knew uh, of chuck norris and bruce lee Mm -hmm. and sylvester stallone sort of by reputation and you know like oftentimes these are the films that really transcend international borders Mm -hmm. you know like the the action movies
0: and we should point out that like uganda has always been a war ravaged country Mm -hmm. that's had a lot of difficulties Mm -hmm. and that all of those experiences is something that Isaac has talked about that he puts into his movies. For example, in Who Killed Captain Alex, one of the iconic images in the picture was that a helicopter looking like it crushes a building yeah. and it collapses. And on the commentary track, Isaac is like, oh yeah, it's actually shooting the missiles backwards because when I was a kid and we would run away from the helicopters when they'd come into our village, we had to make sure to always stay in front of them because we knew that they shot rockets backwards. Yeah. Well, you know,
1: these movies do have a strong like documentary Mm -hmm. element, as you suggest. Uh, Bad Black is very much about sort of the poverty of the area. Like one of the villains of the film is this gangster who has this like little army of child soldiers basically Uh, children who have been kicked out of their families because their families couldn't afford them and Mm -hmm. he has them working as you know street thieves Mm -hmm. um and you know alan hoffmanis in that film plays just like a medical guy
0: Mm -hmm. in the the community just Uh, helping out children and stuff like that mm -hmm. until a small child named wesley snipes (laughs) teaches him how to do martial arts and fight back and that kid uh, so good so good (laughs) he really he
1: really gives (laughs) a aggressive performance.
0: So, I mean, you've probably, um, so you've probably ca- caught on by our tone of voice. But like, these films are not just fun because, wow, look at what they could put together with the meager resources they have. It's also like, wow, these are really energetic and like, like the action you get really involved with it because they're really going at it. It's- I mean, the movies are shameless in their desire to
1: entertain mm-hmm. and. Uh, The action scenes are actually quite good. Like, the the kung fu Mm. scenes are real kung fu. And
0: that's because the director and his brother learned martial arts as kids, mostly out of books that they found. Mm. And and they got to the point where they could actually participate in martial arts, like, local championships, Mm. which is why the kind of physicality of the films is so good it's not like oh look at that punch it missed by a mile it's like oh no they're really going at it Mm -hmm. and moving and jumping and doing flips flips and
1: stuff like that uh there's a lot of like gun violence too Mm -hmm. uh, with a lot of like cgi bullet squirts a lot of explosions
0: and you know one of the reasons that it's so endearing and fun as well is that you know what hollywood is portrayed as a place where these movies happen. It's like a, a whole community. Mm-hmm. If you watch some videos, they'll show like, oh, this is where the armorer is. This is where we actually train the actors. This is our rehearsal room. Mm-hmm. And that it's all stuff that they've had to put together with the resources that they have. Like, None of the guns look real. Sometimes they're Nerf guns. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't matter because everyone's so involved in what's going on. Well, that helicopter
1: is apparently in most of the movies mm-hmm. because it's like the biggest prop they have. Yep, and- they built it. They put it on a crane so it can go up yeah. and down. And there's this guy i can't remember oh Douda is his name i Mm -hmm. believe uh who who sort of Finished the helicopter, made it a prop, and he's like the prop guy on all yeah. these movies. He he makes every prop.
0: So like in Bad Black, Al's character has like a big M sixteen machine gun, but it has wooden bullets on the side. But doesn't really matter. Yeah. I mean, we talked about how like the plots are a little bit hard to follow. And Isaac has said because most of these films are improvised, we'll get to the location, figure out how it works. But he also wants to involve everybody that's willing to give their time. So there's sometimes a couple dozen characters, and you're like. Yeah. Wait, I don't know who's who. What's going on? Well,
1: as these movies have become more popular, both worldwide and in Uganda, like people now travel Mm -hmm. to the Wakaliga village um, to be part of them. And the filmmaker, Nabwana IGG, Isaac, he is very democratic. He loves—if you come to his set— Uh, he'll involve you in the movie in some capacity. And Mm. so these movies are uh, true community efforts.
0: Yeah, Isaac has said it kind of feels like live theater. Like Mm. when he's shooting, there's always a crowd of people watching Mm. because they just want to see this kind of magic happen. Because before, no one was doing this. Mm. And even if you tried to do it, you would be ridiculed. Um, Isaac has talked about how, you know, critics in Uganda actually don't treat his film seriously because they're not in English. Mm. Because... No one's going to watch a Ugandan film in the local language. It needs to be in English. Like if you watch a lot of another um, African country, Nigeria's uh, films, they're mostly all in English. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, a prophet is never recognized
0: in his hometown. That's right.
1: As a a, a fellow by the name of Christ himself
0: once said. (laughs) Uh, You mean Alan, of course, playing Jesus (laughs) Christ? But... Once these films gained kind of international attention, that's when people were like, oh wow, like this is actually something that. People care about. Well,
1: it's also like Isaac has said that when he was growing up and falling in love with movies, he never, you know, he he would say, "I, I want to be a filmmaker one day," and his parents or other people around him would say, "Well, of course you can't do that. L- yeah. Look at where we're living." There's and, no
0: point of reference or anyone who you could look to and say, "Oh yes, just like this other person." <laughs> it's yeah. there's no like he's starting from scratch.
1: But you know, you look at these movies and you remember that movies are if not in their production, then at least in their reception, a very democratic art form. Mm-hmm. Like, everybody loves movies. Everybody, like movies appeal to people of all ages uh, and, and they cross all sorts of barriers. And Alan Hoffmanis has said in interviews that you watch these movies and you remembered why you loved movies in the first place. Mm-hmm. You, you tap into a sort of like, almost like childlike primal uh, wonder.
0: Like I watched some YouTube videos that did reviews of these films. And even like the most like, ironic critic can't help but just let himself be lost in the pictures Mm -hmm. because i remember hearing one guy's like oh this video joker is so annoying but then by halfway through i'm getting into it it's fun i mean when you hear
1: the video joker you know with an audience Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) like you're really laughing along to him by the way at at that night you put on alan halfmana said that one time he brought like DVDs of Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin movies Mm -hmm. to the village and they were a big hit. And there are apparently versions of those movies in the village now where a VJ has recorded commentary Uh, on them. uh, And if if somebody can get me access to like
0: (laughs) modern times with VJ Emmy narrating it. (laughs) I I think Alan was saying that like all movies have VJs, right? Yeah. Because sometimes they're in English. So Mm. the people watching can't necessarily understand the dialogue. It's, you know, in the silent era, this happened a lot, uh, specifically in Japan. It was the Benchy who would narrate, but he wouldn't just narrate. He would also give his own angle on what's going on it's also like another character in the movie that's playing yeah and that's something that i can't think of anywhere in the developed world where that is something that happens that's not mst3k yeah. or a variation of
1: that and vj emmy in these movies serves an interesting function where he totally neutralizes the so bad it's good response mm-hmm. because
0: he's doing it for you, yeah, like for the viewer, like you're thinking that. But if he jumps on it before it, it goes from ah, isn't it bad? To like ah, like you're into it, you're involved in it, you're not laughing at it, you're laughing with it. And it be, yeah, and it becomes sort of participatory. Mm-hmm.
1: It's like like uh, we're inviting you to join in our fun. <laughs> yes,
0: mm-hmm. and I think you know that's not just the way the movies play but that's how the way the movies are made I mean they're made with his family they're made with his friends mm-hmm. it's made with all the people in this village and mm-hmm. I think that you can feel that in the movies as well it also puts me in mind of like just
1: regional cinema mm-hmm. I mean you, you I, I look at these movies and I'm reminded a bit of you know obviously David the Rock Nelson is not as good a filmmaker as <laughs> yes. He? Um, but or or you know george romero uh who who is as good a filmmaker as this or like yeah i
0: mean like in a world where the internet and people are constantly complaining about "Ah, nothing feels fresh it's all been done before it's like here you go and this is this is nothing you got nothing like this this
1: is the democratization of Mm, filmmaking
0: in action you know (laughs) in action like the best of the best action (laughs) i mean
1: we've got We've got the cameras, we've got the editing equipment.
0: Uh, I mean, we don't really have electricity because it only lasts a few hours yeah. each day and may be gone for weeks at a time. Yeah, and you may not have hard drive space to oh, save all Oh my God, I heard a story that Isaac said that he was just about to export a film that he had just finished and there was an electric surge and it zapped his hard drive. Oh no. And like smoke came out of it and he's like, ah, it's gone. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I'm really curious that We've gotten these two movies: Who Killed Captain Alex and Bad Black. But like looking at IMDb and looking at clips, there seems to be other ones out there. There's that, a cannibal one. Yeah, that oh. one's not yet, yeah, not done. I don't think. Okay. There's also like Ebola Hunter. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've heard Alan talk about that. It's because he shoots them all at the same time, and he doesn't seem to be like getting them out there. Like it take take years to finish one. So I'm interested, like what elements go into that? I mean, they're
1: feature length films.
0: Yes. Too. Yeah. Uh, they're you yeah. Usually about over an hour, or maybe some of them are too localized mm-hmm. that like, yeah, why why even try to release them internationally? Let's just keep them home and not worry about it. There's a Bruce Bruceploitation film. Yes. There? There's one where it looked like an Asian actor of some kind. It was made in 2011. I believe it was called... Uh, rescue team. There's a trailer online, there's a poster that also has the tantalizing, like, with English subtitles, which Mm -hmm. makes me think that, like, it's out there somewhere, but I've never seen it or heard anyone that's watched it. I know, hopefully we'll be able to get more access
1: to these movies. I
0: mean, uh, a clip from the return of Uncle Benin, which stars... Mm -hmm. Bruce, you at one point he grows like thirty feet tall and kicks a guy. Yeah, I'm like, yes, please.
1: In one of the documentaries I watched about this, Isaac was mentioning that he also hopes Wakaliwood will continue for years. Mm-hmm. You know, even after him. I mean, he's fostering
0: this sort of filmmaking community in Uganda. I mean, he says it quite literally. Like, it's about the children. Mm-hmm. Like, if you give them hope that they can dream that this can happen, like their lives are going to be different. Yeah. And you see it like they train the uh, the kids in martial arts, they give them acting roles. They, I mean, it's not like they give them too much responsibility, but they just give them Opportunities that it seems in this area they had never had and before. And everyone can
1: feel a piece of ownership mm-hmm. of the movie. And then hopefully there will be other generations of Wakaliwood.
0: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, do we have any letters this week?
0: We do have letters. Um, as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Joe Clark. And the subject line is, Growing up with Tati. He goes, hi, Will and Justin. On the episode uh, about Jacques Teti, Justin mentioned that he didn't think anyone in North America grew up watching Teti. In my family, Teti was frequently in rotation since Monsieur Hulu's holiday was my little brother's Favorite movie when he was about three or five years old. My dad was a security guard at a university, and during his shifts, he would make copies of the library's VHS collection. The only way you could see those Tati movies, I guess, from That's a, a yeah. university yeah. library. I was expecting him to be like, "Yes, they played on uh, the public access TV station."
1: I think I have actually seen like fragments of Tati movies on like the French Channel. Or yeah, something like that
0: sounds, or maybe like PBS.
1: Oh, by the way, a story that I didn't tell on the Tati episode. Mm. I think the actual worst movie screening I've ever been to was a screening of Monsieur Hulot's Holiday.
0: Really? It
1: was at Lincoln Center in 2012, and it was a children's uh, or a family matinee screening of okay. Monsieur Hulot's Holiday and the kids did not enjoy it yes it was pandemonium
0: so just, like just the kids screaming the entire time around
1: playing mm. uh, while
0: uh, you know and you hate children you should sit silently and watch this film
1: well, uh, well I mean 90 minutes of black and white French whimsy I guess <laughs> yeah. are not riveting to small children today I, le- well I, I wasn't angry because I was sort of like
0: well no, the, what know, did I expect of course this is going to happen um, and the letter continues I think my dad was had grown tired of watching the same kids cartoons probably public domain racist ones (laughs) (laughs) and um, it was a budget friendly way of exposing us to more art by the time the DVD came along my dad's collection was pretty much a duplicate of the reserves of the film studies program I like Kurosawa and Indian movies, but my brother was crazy about Monsieur Lu. He'd watch it over and over. Your last episode brought back fond memories of lazy afternoons falling into the movie's hypnotic rhythm. Your podcast has been a great entry back into the movies I grew up with, and a whole bunch that are new to me. Just join the Patreon, and I'm excited to go through the back catalog. Now that I have a little girl of my own, I'm looking to expose her to great movies that won't scar her. I watch Panther, Panchali, and Bicycle Sieves way too young. Any family-friendly favorites you can recommend? Thanks and best wishes, Joe Clark.
1: Uh, Family-friendly classics for kids. Well, I mean, uh, you know, The Wizard of Oz yeah, and Miyazaki all that stuff. and all that stuff.
0: You know what's funny about Monsieur Lou's Holiday appealing to a three- or five-year-old? It just plays into what we've talked about before, that when you're that age and you're not in a cinema where it's demanded of you to pay attention and it feels like a big deal, it doesn't matter what the movie is. And especially if it does have those comedic rhythms, as a kid, you're going to fall into it. And something like Monsieur Lowe's Holiday, like, a kid would want to watch it over over and over and over again because there's different things that are being shown to a kid. It's
1: also just like entering a world.
0: Yeah, exactly. I remember as a kid rushing down to watch Winnie the Pooh cartoons endlessly at 6 a.m. in the morning. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I was excited about seeing other than visiting my good friend, Mr. Pooh. I mean, sometimes
1: you forget how you respond to movies as a kid. You forget that you like the certain sounds Mm -hmm. and you like, yeah, just like certain colors, Mm -hmm. certain textures uh, in a way that isn't you, you know it's, it has nothing to do with the plot really yeah
0: it's not about like am I engaged it's yeah. more like what are you giving me well I mean I
1: used to when I was a kid love Chitty Chitty Bang Bang
0: right? <laughs> and you watched it recently uh, and uh, well
1: no I, I still it still brings back fond memories for me but like there were just were just things in that movie like Dick Van Dyke has this breakfast machine mm-hmm. in the movie a uh, complex one like Pee Wee's breakfast yeah, machine and you
0: couldn't wait for it to show up on screen I, I right? could just
1: watch it that over and over and
0: over <laughs> again as a kid I liked
1: in that movie Dick Van Dyke's uh father has this little hut that he goes into it's like a house yeah and he goes into it and it just basically looks like an outhouse but it's a little brick outhouse and i was fascinated by a house that small (laughs) i would just watch that and be like how how does he fit in a house that small
0: even like now kids have access to whatever they want Mm -hmm. but you know i have friends that have kids and they just want to watch the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah. Whatever at a specific time makes an impact on them, probably be something like Cars 3. Yeah, That's all they're going to want to uh, watch. Uh, Momo. Yeah. You remember Momo? Nope. Nobody listens. I do remember. It was
1: that, it was that urban yet. legend that uh, yep. would tell kids to kill themselves. Oh, but uh, in terms of family classics for kids... You know, it, just because it's on my mind today, because Criterion has announced they're releasing it. Polyester. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's right.
1: Uh, no, but they, they're releasing The Circus by Charlie Chaplin. Mm. I think that's a pretty accessible one for a Yeah,
0: kid. I think it definitely. Yeah. Or, you know, the greatest kids film of all, especially if they're three, five years old. Godzilla versus Megalon. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, Godzilla. Yeah. Show, show some Godzilla. Show them when they're young too, so they're not going to be like, "Ugh, this plot is so boring, nothing's happening." Because they're just going to be happy to see monsters on screen. You know, you know what would be really good to show to kids is the Ultraman uh, like mm. live action show. Yeah. Because then they can enjoy something that the aesthetics are going to feel different than anything else, and it's just like really goofy and fun and dubbed in English oh show time bandits oh that's pretty scary for kids though but you know kids, kids should be scared kids like to be scared the parents get blown up at the end
1: <laughs> yeah but but you know like it's hard to get just the right balance between too scary mm. and not scary enough
0: yeah i mean like even the uh, dc movie shazam came out and every review that i read said eh, it's too scary for kids like they push it too far mm. uh, kids like to be scared but i don't have any kids of myself and i'm sure that you know one of my friends once showed his young daughter uh, all the star Movies, and he had forgotten in um, the third one or one of the sixth one. uh, Return of the Jedi. Yeah, Revenge of the of the Sith. Seth. Uh, Anakin has his legs and arms cut off and then he's burnt alive in a volcano. You never know what's going to scare kids. <laughs> she what? did not. Yeah. How would you know that that would be scary? <laughs> well, I
1: know when I was a kid, I was really afraid of that scene in the wizard of Oz where the flying monkeys also a
0: very scary scene, take apart the scarecrow. Yeah. And then you
1: see him dismembered on the ground. and, and he's goes, like, They threw me
0: over here and they yeah. threw me over here. <laughs> I mean, I, I think both of those are pretty good examples of like things that are scary. Yeah. Uh, but you, you're right. As a kid, you don't know what's going to like trigger something and cause nightmares. Do you think
1: a kid would like the Marx Brothers these days? No. I, I liked I, duck soup when I was a kid.
0: Uh, I mean, there are slapsticky, but they're also very verbal. Yeah. So I don't know if a three or five-year-old... You know what yeah. a kid would love? The Three Stooges. Uh, yeah, I knew you were going to go there. <laughs> uh, and other than that, I don't know. The Ritz Brothers, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: Al Jolson.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, normalize it while they're still young. Uh, But yeah, you know what? Chaplin, that's a great example. We said it last week too, Buster Keaton. Harold Lloyd is really good too. Sherlock Jr. Mm -hmm. uh,
1: Second week in a row I've recommended that movie.
0: (laughs) But I think a kid would love Sherlock Jr. You're going to go for a third time (laughs) next week? Oh, and Bugs Bunny. Oh yeah, show them the cartoons. I mean, Warner Brothers just released the first Bugs Bunny cartoon. They made a big deal of it. Didn't they say like a thousand cartoons and like, used to be a big sign supposedly on the Warner Brothers lot about it. And finally the first one came out and it was only like a minute and 13 seconds long. Bugs Bunny wore weird yellow gloves. But other than that, felt like a classic Bugs Bunny cartoon. They tried really hard to recreate that aesthetic. Yeah, I liked it. So our next letter is from Joe McGregor and he goes, Dear Important Cinema Club, do you guys keep a list of movies you are intending to watch or actively seeking out? If so, whose list is bigger? Looking forward to that eight hour Godzilla (laughs) episode, Joe McGregor.
1: Uh, well Justin probably has the bigger list but I have the bigger uh, penis
0: (laughs) yes it's massive yeah (laughs) Uh, you know list making for movies is complicated for me because I love to do it but often what I will do is I will make a list and then never watch one (laughs) on that list because you've scratched scratch that itch of making the list (laughs) so you're like oh I'm gonna watch this and I'm gonna watch that and then you'll go back to it in a few days and go like Eh, I've thought about this movie too much. I don't want to watch this. I yeah. want to watch something new. What I started to do is actually make a watch list on Letterboxd because then I could put it on and forget about it and then go back and see, oh, yeah, I forgot about that movie. I should check that out. It's
1: good to have some sort of record mm-hmm. uh, that, that you intended at one point to watch something. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but, you know, the, it's, like I said, a dangerous precedent. I have notebooks filled with lists. That I, there's like one scratched off at the top Yeah. <laughs> where I'm like, yes, I will watch all of Andy Milligan's films <laughs> and it's like...
1: Mm. Space
0: those out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this week on our Patreon, what are we talking about? We talked about an Orson Welles film,
1: not just any Orson Welles film, but the most frustrating of all his films. That is
0: Mr. Arcadon. Mm -hmm. We mentioned it a few weeks ago and we were like, yeah, why don't we just watch it and do it for Patreon? And uh, I would like to say that me and Will both agree that it is the best film that Roger Corman made in Puerto Rico. To understand (laughs) what that means, you'll have to listen to the episode. And it's $5 a month and you can get it at patreon.com slash theimportantcinemaclub. What are we doing next week, Will? Next week, we are venturing into the life and
1: filmography of Klaus Kinski.
0: Uh, I hear he's a bit of a complicated individual. And by that, I mean a terrible piece of human garbage. A a rapist. Yes. Yes. Who uh, assaulted his own daughter. Yes. So, um... Uh, but he is charismatic. Well, we will be talking
1: <laughs> about that and also some of his films. I mm-hmm. believe we'll be talking about his only directorial effort, Paganini. Yes. Probably Bullet for the General. Yeah. We,
0: we're we not going to talk about any of his Herzog ones, only because we kind of did in our Herzog episode. Although I, I feel like he's going to come up. Yeah. How, how get, can Herzog not I mean, come up? I mean, we're probably going to watch uh, My Best Fiend. Which is like the urtex for Klaus Kinski. Yeah.
1: Well, My Best Fiend, I think more than anything else, like solidified the public perception Mm -hmm. of Klaus
0: Kinski. Not the um, documentary that came out a few years ago of him doing his one man Jesus (laughs) monologue and just screaming at the audience for two hours. Maybe I'll finally watch that.
1: Yeah. I'm shocked you haven't yet. Well, it looks a little indigestible.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it doesn't look like it is. Yeah. I think that the other one we mentioned was Crawl Space, uh, the film that led the director to considering what's a producer, maybe we should just kill Kinski and collect the insurance. Yeah,
1: it'd be fun to revisit Coral
0: Space. Okay, yeah. So those are uh, the films that we're going to check out. So until next week, my name is Justin Gloom. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. I was
1: reading an article in The Hollywood Reporter today about the -the behind-the-scenes turmoil of Men in Black International. It was behind-the-scenes turmoil? Who was involved in this? Just just like everybody, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, F. Gary Gray, uh, the script People, a mm-hmm. lot, lot of fat warring factions, and what I thought was interesting is this is the second week in a row that I've read an article about behind the scenes turmoil of the movie that was number one at the box office. Yes,
0: uh, but that
1: really um underperformed. It, it, yeah, it was a big flop mm. uh, despite being number one because you know I, I saw the posters for this movie and I thought, who is that for? But well, men, Men in Black. So we're talking about you know the third sequel to a movie that came out in 1997 that is commonly regarded as. The only good one of the series. And, <laughs> hey,
0: hey, I like Men in Black 3. Okay, well... It, Which also had a lot of behind-the-scenes turmoil as well. Yeah, that one went way over budget. Yes, yeah. and they had to shut down for a long time mm-hmm. because of tax credit reasons, as so they say. So, but, oh, no, there was no script. That's what it was. Right. They started shooting with that one. But this this uh,
1: series is running on the fumes of a movie that came out 22 years ago, and that, you know, isn't that
0: great. Ah, really. uh, the cartoon, though. Okay. Watch that all the time. But, like, what do people love about Men in Black? I can tell you what it was. It was Will Smith. That's it. That's yeah. what they loved. Yeah. So to reboot it, like people aren't that excited to see the coffee drinking aliens. Remember those guys? No, I know. <laughs> uh, Orion's Belts, is that back? Wait, Black? wasn't there like a dog that was an alien as well? Oh, he yeah, talked. yeah. That's it's right. all like coming back to me like Proust. <laughs> yeah. Memories of things past. So every week <laughs> there's
1: just one of these things that is just like a, a zombified uh, well, franchise. Well, you
0: know what's a good example of that is that would also flop this weekend was Shaft. Yes. And people are like, huh, I wonder what these things have in common. How could we crack this code okay. of why the box office isn't doing well? Could it be it's remakes of stuff and people don't want to watch them anymore?
1: Well, this new Shaft movie was marketed on the idea that like this is the movie where Shaft uh, goes after millennials. Yes.
0: But I don't think normal audiences saw that stuff. It was, like, all over the internet and there yeah. was, like, little teasers.
1: Well, nothing about anything in the av- of the advertising of that movie was, like, what is the concept? I but, mean- <laughs> I mean, like,
0: the same thing is with Men in Black, which is, I'm sure people who saw the trailer, no one has that many fond memories of the original John Singleton Chef Or the... Well, the the one the ones before that are forever ago. Yes, and they remember the iconography of Shaft. Yeah, and what this trailer, especially to anyone who'd be interested in that, what the trailer saying is, ha ha, this is a joke, and we're gonna make fun of it. Yeah, like they could have done like a straighter version of Shaft. They could have done like John Wick, but it's Shaft.
1: Well, the John Singleton Shaft did okay. Yes, it it did,
0: and because it was entirely
1: sold on the idea of look at this cool guy yes uh you remember how cool shaft was well Mm. this is the new shaft and he's just as cool
0: and what's something like the failure of this version um shows people making movies it doesn't show them let's be honest yeah Yeah, the lesson they're going to take out of this is huh i guess movies that star black people don't do well even though that you know the box office would say differently is that like people don't want stuff that they like treated as a joke Sure. Like, they'd rather it, you know, treated straight ahead. And also, the iconography of shaft doesn't really get people excited just like fucking men in black yeah like i love men in black when i was a kid that was my favorite movie i watch it all the time well a
1: lot of the raison d'etre of shaft is kind of rooted in the early 70s mm-hmm. like the idea of a black private dick was a, a big novelty back then and there are ways to make it you yeah know, like like think of all the like tensions with the police mm-hmm. these days there are ways to make shaft relevant again
0: that is not the movie that they made Yeah, <laughs> but you know you checked out men in black right what'd you say be yeah. summed up that's why you brought it up uh, I haven't seen it, uh, but I'm sure it's lovely. (laughs) Uh, You uh, had
1: something else you wanted to talk about.
0: Yeah. uh, I mean, it it linked into that. Speaking of dead
1: things. Yeah.
0: The idea of streaming. And, you know, we're at peak streaming right now, right? Where it's like there's shows everywhere. I'm
1: subscribed to God knows how many And there's only
0: going to be more because the companies are starting to just, like, break off and like, it's going to be Warner Brothers. It's going to be universal. It's going to be, I guess the rest is Disney because they own everything. Yeah. And it's going to get to a point where like these streaming models cannot sustain the shows that they're creating exclusively from it because the people are not paying enough money for it. Mm -hmm. You pay like $10 for something and then they have to turn around and produce like a million different shows. I mean, it just happened with Swamp Thing where it was a $100 million show and after the first episode aired, they canceled it the reason well, they canceled it and i mean there's a lot of things that came out was that they were supposed to or they believed they were going to get a 40 million dollar tax break that didn't happen and then they wow. turned around and were like oh it's canceled but that i mean the fact that like it happened so quick seems like there's other stuff going on behind uh-huh. the scenes that makes me and like why would the f- how would you announce it the first day your show comes out, people are subscribing to your service to watch the show. And then you're saying, "And eh, we're not going to make any more. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just like, it's, I mean, it's venture capitalism, right? Mm. Where there's no money that exists. Like, I mean, Netflix is billions De- of in dollars yeah. in debt. Yeah. Yeah. But they're the biggest, it's Wile Coyote syndrome, where, like, they ran off the cliff, and as long as they don't look down... Nothing bad can happen. I think Netflix could be very profitable if
1: uh, if they they like raise the prices. Or if they, like, did not keep making very expensive
0: things. <laughs> yeah. Although I do hope that Martin Scorsese bleeds them dry for every dollar <laughs> yeah. they're worth. The $200 million yeah. film. I mean, the Netflix model is based on... I'm sure there's, like, a presentation somewhere which says, if everybody in the world subscribes to Netflix, this is how much money we're going to make. Yeah. And they're like, all right, well, we just got to work our way toward that. But with all these niche services and they're charging $10 a month... That makes no sense anymore. Like, yeah. it's not sustainable. There's going to be an insane crash that's going to happen when all of these streaming servers go bankrupt all one after the other. Yeah,
1: they should just unite into one streaming service.
0: Like. Yeah, it's called Disney+. Plus. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating. And, it I mean, it really goes to show how, you know, our modern day world is built on something that people don't want to pay for stuff. And if nobody pays for anything, then nothing can exist. People will pay for Netflix. Yeah, that's that's right. And Disney. And those were the only two things that will exist for all time. Oh, that's great. And it's great. Makes things much easier. (laughs) Because most of those companies, like Netflix, doesn't release numbers. So nobody knows what's good or what's bad. And it's all up in the air. As that article that came out where a Netflix CEO said, you know, our decision if we want to keep a show or not is really built around, do we feel we'd fight for it? And if we say no, it gets canceled. Damn. Ugh. That can't be true. <laughs> yeah, that's what multiple people said. Wow. That's the world that we live in. <laughs> These probably mostly white men on top making the decisions. So really, it's just like every other day. <laughs>